done lots of retention interviews with top performers saying, what do you like about working here? What don't you like about working here? And really trying to take that feedback and, and put it to work. And most importantly, communicate it. I think the big thing that gets missed a lot of times is you do the survey and maybe you even do the fixes because of the survey, but you have to communicate that back because one, you want people to know about the change, but two, you also want people to know they're being heard. This is Reveal, the Revenue Intelligence Podcast, here to help go-to-market leaders do one thing, stop guessing. If you're ready to unlock reality and reach your potential, then this show is for you. I'm Sheena Badani. And I'm Devin Reed, coming to you from the Gong Studios. What comes next? It's the question our guest really makes us think about in the realm of hiring and retaining good talent, in the realm of remote work, even in the realm of small talk. Ed McQuiston is the Executive Vice President and Chief Commercial Officer at Highland, where he helps customers make the most of Highland's tech offerings. Ed knows what comes next. For him, it's always a people-first view. He never lets an employee survey go without a follow-up. He really listens during small talk with his colleagues and asks follow-up questions. And he isn't afraid to implement new ideas to evolve his team's culture and make sure his employees feel heard. As we dive in with Ed and start our conversation around retention in remote work, keep an ear out for all the times he asks, what comes next? So, you know, actually just before this conversation, I was just scrolling through my phone. I was on the New York Times app and I think there were like three articles just there about the great resignation and people leaving and the headache this is causing for hiring managers. And I think you can go to any media site and you'll see the exact same thing or even LinkedIn. So just to kick things off, I'd love to get your perspective on the talent market today. What's happening? It's funny that you you bring that up because I'm kind of an anti-cliche guy, but but the first time I saw the great resignation, I was like, Oh, that's 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 cute. That's an interesting name for it. But now, of course, I'm 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 sick of hearing it already. But for the reason that you're alluding to, which is it's very real, and I think there's multiple facets to it. I mean, I think in part in 2020, most people would have been hard pressed to be compelled to want to switch jobs. I mean, there was so much uncertainty about everything that I think you know staying put felt safe. So you already had sort of a, a bubble that was growing just because nobody was moving jobs in 2020. You enter 2021 and, you know, people, I think we're, I mean, just human behavior looking for any sort of change. I mean, we're, we're all living the sameness from day to day to day. We were joking before we started about the endless, you know, Zoomathons that we do, you know, day in and day out. And so I think just some feeling of change I think people were looking for. And then I think the third leg of the stool for me is that I don't think there's anybody that feels like they're not working more, which feels ironic. For example, I was a big traveler, like a lot, a lot, global travel where you feel, you know, physically run down and you don't realize till you stop and you, you do this every day where you're, you know, back to back to back zooms all day and you never get it's hard to think and describe travel as a break, but for example, it was it was change. And so I think everybody's working more. I think they're feeling more stressed. I think they're feeling more strung out. And so there's this hamster wheel that I think a lot of people feel like they're on combined with 
coming out of 2020 and, you know, really not changing and wanting change. And so I think a lot of people were just saying, I just want to get, I want to make the pain stop. I just want to get off the train just for a minute. And I think most people would acknowledge that eventually three months or six months from now, whatever greener grass I find, I'm going to be right back on that hamster wheel. But if it means that for six months, I feel refreshed, I think a lot of people are going, I'll take that. So you had, I think, all those factors. And then you had this technology boom in, in 2020 where, you know, we know lots of businesses really got hurt because of COVID, but the technology industry by and large wasn't one of them. And so at least in tech, which is, you know, what I'm familiar with, these, you know, huge growth in all these technical companies meant that there was this burgeoning need for talent without the restriction of geography anymore. I didn't need to look in a 40-mile radius of my office. I could recruit people from anywhere. And now you've created this, you know, brand new dynamic. And of course, all the tools in the world are out there that put the employee in the catbird seat, you know, whether it's LinkedIn or Indeed or what have you, it's never been easier for them to to go find something. So, you know, you have this, you know, kind of classic example of supply and demand, you know, that's, that's going on where, you know, a lot of people are looking, just get me off that hamster wheel just for a minute. And in times past, they might have even moved for less money just to make the pain stop. But the reality is with this bubble that's out there on the company side, for many people, there's there's more money, there's more opportunity, there's greener grass, at least on the surface. And so I think it's kind of this bunch of ingredients that create have just created this crazy environment right now that it's hard to think is going to slow down very soon. That's so true. I can completely understand that feeling and that perspective that folks are going through across the board. You're currently chief commercial officer at Highland. So tell us one, like a, a little bit about your role there. And number two, like, what are you seeing at your organization? Are you seeing a lot of those same trends and that same sentiment? So my role um, in, in Highland speak, uh, chief commercial officer is responsible for our sales, our marketing, our customer success, and our global services organization. And so Highland's about 4,500 people or 30-year-old company. We specialize in the content services space. And I've been part of Highland for 20 years. And we've been very fortunate as a company. You know, we were named Fortune 100 best companies to work for six of the last, you know, eight years. But we were a bit of a office centric company. So of our, you know, let's call it 4,000 people at the beginning of 2021, Prior to COVID, probably 2,500 to 3,000 of those would have been based in some office. And about 1,800 of that number based in our headquarters, which is just west of Cleveland. And so, you know, Highland has been a company that benefited in some ways of not being in Silicon Valley or Seattle, where the, you know, competition for tech talent, local tech talent specifically was so fierce. And now as really uh, geography no longer plays a part in recruitment, whether you're in, in Cleveland or San Francisco or Florida or, you know, overseas, by and large, there is this sort of leveling that's happened in terms of where you can go seek work. So, you know, we definitely have seen the impact. Fortunately, our turnover numbers would still be considered best in class 
in tech. And I think I attribute that a lot to our company culture and to the fact that, you know, we think that we're a really, really good place to work where people care about each other. But it doesn't mean that you're not vulnerable to the same things. All the factors I described on the human side of it, right? Our people feel stressed. Our people are sick of Zoom. Our people, I mean, you know, it's, it's, there are things that are tough to not have be a part of the everyday right now because it's just the world we're working in. So, you know, we've focused a lot as an executive team on employee engagement and really, you know, getting feedback, doing, you know, I think lots of companies do interviews uh, on the way out, exit interviews. We've done lots of retention interviews with top performers saying, what do you like about working here? What don't you like about working here? And really trying to take that feedback and, and, and put it to work. And most importantly, communicate it. I think the big thing that, you know, gets missed a lot of times is you do the survey and maybe you even, even do the fixes because of the survey, but you have to communicate that back because one, you want people to know about the change, but two, you also want people to know they're being heard. And I think that's been, you know, a, a key element for us has been, we have an employee engagement office. It's been a, you know, a big part of our culture for a very long time, but no one is immune to it right now at all. And you said your company culture had been office centric prior to the pandemic. I imagine as remote work started and then we realized it doesn't seem to be going anywhere. And now we're like, oh, it's definitely not going away, right? It's just it's hybrid. I'm curious kind of like what your mentality was, maybe you and your leadership team, you know, during that transition for recruiting, right? Were you kind of like, hey, let's hold off on remote for a little while? Were you kind of, did you embrace it quickly? And, and maybe any details kind of along that way would be, would be interesting. Yeah, well, I, you know, what I would say is, you know, as, as our, our company, I mean, we've, we've been very fortunate to be, you know, in a rapid growth mode the last 10 years or so. And a lot of that growth coming via acquisition, which, you know, sort of immediately creates, you know, diversity in offices and geographies and everything like that. And so, you know, as, as we sort of, you know, ex exploded, you know, outside of our traditional headquarters area in Cleveland, I think philosophy changed a lot, you know, from a hiring perspective. I think in sales specifically, we've probably always acknowledged that you just get the best people wherever they are. I think when you think about areas like R&D, you know, I think we liked the idea of a collaborative R&D environment where you, you, you could have more people in the same space. I think, you know, with COVID, even with the acquisitions and, and now certainly with COVID, you know, it's radically different. If anything, I think what it has done is, and, and I think this will be an interesting impact for not just tech, many categories of company, but definitely tech, is there used to be, I think, this, you know, concept of onshore and offshore. So you do some amount of your work domestically in the U.S. if you're a U.S.-based company, and then you have your quote-unquote, you know, offshore. I think that, you know, what at least in my mind, as everything has become more geographically disparate, I don't know if that exists in the same way that it did. You know, that ultimately, if you want R&D people, you hire the best people where they are. You know, it doesn't necessarily have to be as centralized as it once was, which is great in terms of expanding the talent pool, but it it's even having impact in markets that were, you know, previously, you know, take India, for example, as, you know, known for, you know, heavy R&D centers, but very office centric, right? So you were either based in Hyderabad or you were based in Delhi or you were based in, well, now you're starting to see 
there being, you know, home-based work, you know, in India. And that has a whole, you know, interesting dynamic. So I think what it does is it puts, again, my lens is tech, but it, it puts tech on alert, I think, to think differently about your your talent pool and where it comes from and, you know, where, where it's going to grow into. And it's creating a lot of wage pressure, you know, of course, as well. I loved, loved, loved what you said about doing those retention interviews to understand like, why are folks staying at your company? Like what's working well? Um, I think that's an amazing idea and more companies should do that. I'd be curious, like what else have you learned through that process? Or are there other things that you've put into play to help retain your best folks, whether it's from like a cultural perspective, an experiential perspective? Would love to hear about that. I would be very clear in saying, I think we're still figuring it out like everyone else. You know, it is, it is very different. What I think we've, we've tried to do is, is think about all of the different areas that, that impact the employee from, you know, not just how they do their daily work. So, you know, one of the things that, you know, we got feedback on really is, is just mental wellness. So we've changed, improved, our employee assistance programs and the access that they have to, you know, wellness professionals to be able to help them because it is, it is tough right now, right? We've, um, you know, looked at doing things around our training programs that aren't necessarily professional training programs. So people can take an online cooking class at lunch, or they can take an online uh, class about nutrition, or they can take, you know, these different things. So trying to create programs that, you know, you can participate in that, as I said before, you know, being a little more office centric in the past would go, well, you know, well, let's do this thing after work. We'll do this, you know, Friday night kids party, you know, we'll do a barbecue in the parking lot and, you know, show movies and you you just don't have that, right? So you've got to find new ways because I think where, all of this virtual interaction takes away from is connection. I know for myself, you know, one of the things um, I actually went into the office for most of the day and and have come back home. So, you know, I was in, a, in the office today and I had a couple of meetings that were in person and you sit down and you say, oh, you know, what are you doing this weekend? Oh, you know, we're doing this with the kids. It's a, it doesn't exist. It, do, it really doesn't exist in the Zoom world, right? It's like, all right, we're on from nine to 9.30. It's nine o'clock. Let's meet. It's 9.30. I got to go to the to the next one. And it's just, you know, like a super different thing. And I think it's hard for all of us because I think as a leader, you go, well, gosh, you know, how do I address that? Well, maybe what we'll do is we'll do the first 10 minutes of our team meeting we'll have is social time. I think it just feels stilted. All right, for 10 minutes, let's not talk about work. It's like, well, that doesn't feel real. It just feels so forced and manufactured. And so it's both hard because there isn't built-in time to connect. And yet, when you sort of try to create it, it, it feels like, you know, kind of the forced fun factor. How much does small talk actually affect an employee's overall satisfaction with their job? For some, small talk fosters connection and camaraderie. Others view it as a waste of time. The Harvard Business Review conducted a survey last year to put some data behind the big small talk question. They conducted a study of over 150 full-time employees who worked in an office setting, keep in mind this was pre-pandemic, where they asked them to keep tabs on how much small talk they made and exactly how they felt at the end of each workday. The results were conclusive. More small talk correlated to less burnout. 
employees who made time for small talk during the day said they felt more energized and more likely to go out of their way to help a colleague. Yet a secondary effect cited was a bit of distraction from their tasks. But HBR concluded the positives of small talk on mental well-being and colleague camaraderie far outweighed the negative of distractions. So with those results in mind, let's see how Ed found a way to bring some much needed small talk back into his company's remote culture and how it's affected the team. So what we've tried to do is, you know, one of the things that I've been doing has been just these, you know, I call them brown bag lunches. So, you know, basically it's, I get together, we try to, you know, select a group of employees. We'll invite 20 or 30, knowing that maybe 15 show up. It's completely virtual. You know, you you bring your lunch or I'll do it with the Europeans and say, you know, I'll do it at lunch my time, but it's, you know, their happy hour, you know, bring it, bring a drink. And however long it takes, I go around and so what's your name? How long have you been here? What's your role? Who do you report to? Where are you based? And have each of them, you know, I have them. And then when they finish, I have a list of 50 icebreaker questions and ask them. And, and ultimately it humanizes the meeting because the icebreaker questions are like, did you ever win a trophy as a kid? And if so, what was it for? Just something that takes, and you know, in that process, I learned about a guy who's like, he's still frustrated that eight years ago, he came in second in the work chili cook-off. And he's like, he's still, he still worked up about it. And it just, it created this connection amongst the whole group. They're like, well, we should have a virtual chili cook-off and, you know, basically let him win. And then when we wrap all that up, I'll say, everything's on the table, whatever, what, what kind of Q and A you do want to do. It can be professional, it can be personal. But you've, in, in some ways, you've sort of disarmed the conversation because they haven't just connected, you know, with me. And I do the same thing. I, you know, give my background. I answer a, an icebreaker question. And now, you know, I think it's a, it's a more sort of connected environment. I, I think companies and I think leaders, uh, it's really leaders, have to find ways to create that connection without it feeling like this stilted, forced, you know, thing. They don't have to show up to the lunch. It's it's optional. It's up to them. But if they do, we try to make it fun. And and I think we've tried to do, that's the piece is miss, that's missing more than anything. I think it's just this human connection. And you made a, a great point. You've, you've uh, a realization because I also lead a, a small team and I'm looking at my team meeting this year. And I'm like, something's got to change because it's a little flat. It's not where I'd want it to be. The, you know, people in it probably want it to be a little more and finding ways to make it more uh, personal. And I thought the same thing, like, why does that first five to 10 minutes socializing feel so awkward or, you know, like you said, forced, even though that's natural in a way, right? And then as you were talking, I kind of realized like, Sheena, when we're in the big team meetings in marketing, the fun socializing doesn't just happen in the first five minutes. It's seven minutes in when your leader makes a mistake and someone calls out, it's a little joke, people laugh, there's a sidebar for 60 seconds and you get back on track, right? It's these, it's these little moments between it. And to your point, it's kind of like it takes a lot of self-awareness to say, hey, yeah, the meeting is from 9 to 9.30, but it doesn't mean we have to be pedal to the metal the entire 9.30, you know what I mean? Being, you know, trading, I guess, like 100% productivity for some of that more social element. Well, as you know, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, the, the, the people dynamics are always interesting. You know, there are people that I think often feel like, well, if I scheduled at 9 and 9.30, then, and at 9.23, we're sort of like, okay, we got through everything. They, they feel compelled to get through to 9.30. And I think to your point, we could, for example, use the time, but it doesn't have to be the subject at hand. It could be, you know, just completely off topic or personal. 
and I'm stealing this idea to be be uh, totally forthright. Last week we had a um, uh, for our sales kickoff or for our leaders, or actually all of our uh, the leaders across my org. We had uh, Tom Bilyeu, the the podcaster, founder of you know Quest Nutrition and Impact Theory, and one of the things that he said he does, and I, I absolutely immediately stole the idea. I did tell him I was stealing it. So he does weekly two sort of connection sessions. One is basically it's it's a business lunch, and and for all practical purposes, it's it's office hours. So he says, "I'm going to be at this Zoom, you know, from twelve to one, or you know, whatever it is. And if you want to join, and there's anything you want to ask, you know, and, and it's geared, it's professional. Show up, and and we'll try to answer all your questions. And so you know, it creates an open access, you know, the the proverbial open door in the office, which I thought was really good. And then on Fridays." He does a lunch, but there's no work talk. So it's, you know, just come hang out, share stories, talk, whatever it is. And I think there's value in that because I think what it does is it has people come with a set of expectations. And actually I was talking to someone internally that was, you know, trying to sort of help put something like this together. And they even suggested, and we did this at my brown bag lunches in the beginning of COVID uh, I had a survey that I would send out to everybody beforehand to create conversation points. So the survey would be like, what are you binging on Netflix right now? What book are you reading right now? What, what, you know, what, what's your favorite movie? And it would, you know, we'd have five or six questions that we'd asked of the 10 or 12 people that were, you know, showing up and we'd have like, you know, what were the most popular ones and, you know, would give me an opportunity to share those. And all it was, was discussion starters, right? I mean, back to the sort of forced fun aspect, if you just go, okay, everybody, let's talk about fun, go, you know, I mean, it, just doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't work, right? But if you've got something like, you know, what are you binging on Netflix? Holy cow, people come out of their shoes, right? And you've got everything from person who's like, I mean, this is you know, beginning of COVID. So you had everything from Tiger King to like somebody that, you know, had just watched this brand new war documentary series, you know, that came out. And I'm like, all right, somewhere here is, is there's something we can talk about. I think that sort of connection for people is just dearly needed. I love the survey idea because it's also really inclusive. It brings in other voices for folks who might not be as willing to speak up in a larger group setting. And so you can kind of distill some of those insights or pull out some things from some of the quieter folks in the room too. So I really, really like that. Well, and I think to your point, Sheena, I think that, you know, one of the things was, so I'd call them out. So I'd call on them. You know, if there was one that was fun, like one was, you know, what was, what's, what's the coolest thing you've cooked lately? And somebody just made something that was just amazing. And to your point, it, because people can feel even those who would say, I don't want to speak up, excluded just by not being pulled into the conversation. And I think that's an important piece of it when, you know, people are so desperate for feeling like somehow we're connecting with one another. You'd said something, Ed, earlier, like a few minutes back about, you know, the grass is to be greener, whether it's, you know, six months off the hamster wheel, more money, better titles. If talent is more expensive, how does that translate to higher cost? business specifically for your sales reps, right? Because we know sales there's, sales reps are not coin-operated, like at least not all of them, but financial gain is definitely part of everybody. I want to start with the last thing you said, because I appreciate that you said it, because there is this perception out there 
forget what my title is. I'm a dyed in the wool sales guy, overpromoted sales guy, whatever title you, you want to give me. And I always bristle when somebody, you know, talks about salespeople being coin operated because yes, some are for sure. But, you know, salespeople tend to be very emotionally connected to their work. Many of them are more motivated by the win. You know, it's almost like sport. They're motivated by the competition, the money, obviously everybody likes, but I think, I think most of them, if you asked, would not put it number one, if you put these kind of categories of, you know, do you like the competition? So I, I, I appreciate that you, you know, you sort of ended there. There's no doubt that there is this sort of pressure cooker thing that is happening though, because you're right that, so wage pressures are impacting everyone, right? I mean, everyone. So the, you know, the so-called great resignation now has people out there competing for talent to bring new talent in is costing more than it did before. If you want to retain the talent you have, you're having to, you know, address wages uh, internally, especially as you look at what's happening in the market. And, you know, the first thing that any CFO is going to say is, well, I mean, if our costs are going up, then our, our prices are going to have to go up. And so you're seeing it in all the inflationary articles that you're reading about in, in, in the press. And then the flip side is now back to the employee. The employees are going, my costs are going up. So there is this, you know, sort of stew that's being made out there, you know, from all of this. And I think it's hard because I think that a lot of reps, you know, at companies haven't necessarily gone through this. It's a new talk track, if you will, to have to sit down with a customer and explain why price changes are, you know, are happening. And, you know, it's an uncomfortable one because obviously while the CFO that, you know, maybe they're speaking to in their own company is, you know, passing along prices and increases. Um, that doesn't mean they're accepting of it from the people that uh, are their, are their vendors or partners. So, you know, it's a, it, it's, it's a complicated topic at the moment. And I, I don't know where, you know, where the light is at the end of that tunnel, because I think for as long as this labor situation persists, it's going to continue to drive, you know, wage pressure up. I think it's going to be very interesting. I try not to get too much into, you know, social dynamics or, or, or political commentary, but I think it's going to be very interesting, you know, the, the impact over the next few years because of what I was saying about geography, because, you know, corporations, you know, and I'm going to put that in air quotes, and this is not a, a comment on, on, on my company or any specific company, but, you know, corporations are in business to make money. And, you know, there is going to be a tipping point where, for example, domestic wage pressure, you know, has them asking questions about where can they go to find people that can do that work as well or better at the wage that they're willing to pay. And that's, again, that's me sort of looking out a few years, but the trajectory seems tough to sustain. And especially when you start to look at, you know, so for our, you know, for what I would use as a Highland example, you know, we've got really great people with experience, you know, selling tech. So where we'll get hit hard, for example, is a VC backed startup who doesn't have the same sort of, you know, fiscal responsibility concerns that maybe another company does and is willing to say, I'm going to pay you 50% more and I'm going to give you, you know, equity in the company that could turn into a zillion dollars. 
And, you know, if I'm a young rep and, you know, that might sound really enticing to me. And so, of course, you know, the flip side is the stats on startups is some will work out and that person's going to be really glad that they made that change, but a lot won't. And so what happens as, you know, that sort of recycling effect happens with that talent, uh, I think is a question that's out there. So it's an interesting time to be a, a, a leader because you've got, you know, obviously COVID created its own set of pressures. You've got your your people are working really hard and stressed out. Most companies, I think, are in, in tech are understaffed for the work that needs to be done. And they're feeling attrition pressure simultaneously. And so threading that needle of, you know, keeping people happy and addressing demand and addressing a heightened expectation from customers because they can get these great experiences, you know, in the tech world, it's a heavy burden. You know, there's there's so much going on in the world right now. It's been a really interesting start to the new year. As we head further into this year, what would be your recommendations to revenue leaders out there on what should they be focused on given these shifts and changes in the talent market? I always tell people that I'm going to write a book one day, and I probably won't if I'm just being honest. But one of the things that I find, you know, funny is when, you know, people will ask, you know, what have, what have you learned in leadership? You know, what have you learned along the way? And and I say, boy, lower your expectations now for what, what my answer is going to be, because my answer is always the same, which is it's all about the people. And I think people want some, you know, just grandiose, big idea statement. But in my world and, and you know, in, in the tech world, though I doubt it's specific to tech, you know, I really believe that those with the most talent are going to win. They're going to win almost all the time because you guys, you, you work for a tech company and, and you have competitors and just like we do. And when the buyer looks at your product versus another product, and, you know, same as they do mine versus a competitive product, it's very hard for them to discern differences, right? And we can go on and on as revenue leaders about selling value and, and all those things. And, you know, clearly that's the case. But when you look at the procurement cycle that an average, you know, company that's, you know, looking at something goes through, they don't spend near the time necessary to discern why is Gong better than your competitor or why is Highland better than our competitor and so we are reliant on the people, and I don't just mean salespeople, to convey that which the customer won't necessarily see on their own. And if you do not attract, hire, retain the very best, you're going to lose. And I, I just believe that. And I believe, you know, the philosophy of, you know, well, I'm not willing to pay more than this to go get this person. Well, then what I just heard you say is I'm okay with second best. And I just don't believe in that philosophy. I never have. And I think that as more and more of selling and the, the statistics are almost frightening as a salesperson at heart is Gartner released a statistic recently that 17% of the buying cycle is spent with vendors not the chosen vendor, all the vendors. So 83% of the cycle, they're doing it on their own. They're on your website. They're meeting internally. They're doing, so you've got some slice of 17%, which means that, man, your digital content, your digital engagement, your self-serve capabilities, 
all of that, it better be good, like really good, because the, and that I think is where on the people side, it's not just you mentioned the revenue leaders. I am such a I mean, I run, you know, like I said, I have sales and marketing and customer success services. I view those as centers of excellence, not departments. The, the, the customer journey is a continuum. They don't distinguish the departments in your company nor mine. They just want one experience. And, you know, when you think about the very first time they see your social media ad or they, you know, download some white paper or what have you, from that moment on, you've got, you know, this opportunity to convey why are we better and different or not? And that comes down to people because those that can articulate that the best are going to win. I agree completely, right? Like you say it all the time and uh, here at Gong, it's like, you know, we're, we're trying to hire the best talent always. And my my view is like everyone you hire either makes the team better or makes the team worse. There's not really much neutral ground in my opinion. And so to your point, Ed, you know, if you're not willing to go stack and get those A players, A players, A players, and you're probably unfortunately building in the other direction without even really realizing it. So, well, we're, we're coming to a conclusion here and uh, really enjoyed the conversation, Ed, but I have one more question for you. It's a question we ask all of our guests, which is how would you describe sales in one word? The word I keep coming back to is exhilarating. I like that. That might be corny, but I just, I can't imagine getting into sales if you aren't motivated by the hunt, so to speak. You know, I, I think the idea of, you know, really trying to work with a prospective customer or an existing customer on ideas that you can bring to fruition and, and, and create transformation, that process and knowing that it's happening in competition with someone else for me was always so motivating. I mean, and I'll share this a lot because it's a little glimpse into this, my, my sickness, but I used to like, literally, if I was not working, if I was like, just, you know, it was a Thursday night and I'm just watching a, a football game. I would have this moment of what is me at that competitor doing right now? Are they working on that deal right now? Are they, are they passing me up on that deal right now? As I say, it's a bit of a sickness, but, but I think it's that I relate. I'm, I'm a very big sports fan and um, which is an understatement. And I relate sales and sports a lot and I use a lot of sports analogies. And one of the things, you know, we talk about, you know, this whole idea of championships not being won, you know, while the, while the lights are on. Championships are won, practice field, they're won, they're won when nobody's watching. And I relate that to sales. I mean, I think it's, what am I doing when nobody's watching? You know, one of my phrases is, what are you doing when there's, quote, nothing to do? So they're not calling you, they're not emailing you, they're not asking you a question. What are you doing when the lights aren't on? And I think that's, you know, where you, you, you see separation. And that you know, whatever you want to call it, hunt's probably not a particularly attractive word, but that process to me was always exhilarating. I mean, it just, it gets you up in the morning. If you're like Ed and believe people are at the core of any business success, head over to gong.io for more resources on top sales talent. And if you like what you heard today, give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening.